You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 160. Mark, 40 shows away from 200. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little too early, but I mean, I'm getting kind of excited about that already. No, we're, we're going to do something cool in live because we missed it for our 100th episode. We absolutely have to do it for our 200th episode. We just got to get all this stuff out of our way so we can concentrate on, on figuring out what that is. We're both so busy. And speaking of us both being so busy, you've heard us talk about the super happy hour we do last Tuesday of every month. And hopefully if you're in the area, you've got a chance to join us for one or two. If you're not in the area, don't worry. Uh, every place in the U.S. that there's an oil and gas presence, we have a plan to do a happy hour there as well. It'd be one big family. But speaking of that... We did a live stream, Jake, the last happy hour, and it was really bad. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, <laughs> but people had a lot of interest. People that couldn't go appreciate the live stream. And so now we're looking, if you're out there, for a host for our live stream from the happy hour. So basically it will be your show. You'll be live streaming. There's nothing for you to do. We have all the equipment. We're going to put together a short, you know, 8, 10, 12, 15 minute show and we need somebody to run it. So you'll be part of the OGG and family running the live stream show. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me directly. My uh, contact information is in the show notes and let's have a conversation. Your commitment will be about an hour's worth of work once a month, the last Tuesday of every month and I can talk through it. So if you have an interest in, in coming to join us and being our first live stream host, reach out to me let me know and speaking of reaching out to me jake we've got some great reviews and these keep pouring in That's so best, yeah best oil and gas podcast out there by myself field engineer at slb i actually had coffee with her she is going places and we're gonna end up she's gonna end up coming on board and, and work with us in a really cool way that i don't want to release yet but anyway she left the iTunes reviews before I bought her a cup of coffee just to make sure everybody understands this. <laughs> I can't explain how happy I am to have found this podcast a couple of weeks ago. This is exactly what I need to keep up with my favorite industry. I love the Q&As and how kept up to speed you guys are in the industry. Thank you for the podcast, guys. Love from Canada. And she's actually moving from Canada to Houston. She's nice. actually doing that right now. Yeah. I want to see her complain about the heat after living up <laughs> from Canada. Wait till August to see if she can stand it outside. And then... Best tap into the industry, but my name is John. <laughs> That's funny, but my name is John. Hey, y'all, I've been regularly listening for several months now, and I've loved every minute of it. I'm a freshman petroleum engineer student at LSU. Big shout out to LSU. And I've been using your podcast as a way to keep tabs in the industry. I love hearing your opinions on hot topics about the outlook for the industry. I'd like to hear your advice to other current students headed to this field. Keep up the great work, John. John, thank you so much. And if you'd like to be like Marcel and John and give a big shout out on the show, really simple, leave Jake and I review. It's the number one way to help support the show. And it's time to get the news stories. What we got going on, Jake? All right. First up, let's talk about what's going on in the world. Uh, Iran has threatened to close key oil choke point. Uh, so the Iranian president, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, uh, has threatened to close the Strait of Hormuz, which is vital to uh, up to one third of all global oil shipping as its key transit choke point in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. So let me tell you what's going to happen. He's going to threaten us. We already have part of the 7th Fleet headed out there. Got an aircraft carrier group going out there. If he blocks it, we're going to unblock it. And how what it takes to unblock it, it's too vital to the world. And at the same time, you can't let one country control a, a global waterway, right? And this all has to do with, with Iran uh, running to get its oil to the market. And we keep placing trade restrictions on them. And not just us. It's not just us, uh, it's other countries, too. Because they're not 
abiding by the agreements that they that they've they've made with us and w- with the rest of the world. And so until they decide to come on board and play fair, we're going to limit the amount of oil they can bring to the market. And they don't like that. The the only way they can make any money with anything is oil. That's their lifeblood. So this is just a threat because that would greatly spike oil prices uh, in the, in this low crude price environment. Some people want them to close it so that the price goes back up, you know, ten or twelve dollars a barrel. But if they manage to even try to close this, it's not going to last for it's not going to last for fifteen minutes, right? We will step in and fix it. All right. Up next, uh, Russia needs to accept oil cuts and is beginning to bargain with the Saudis. So Russia has become increasingly convinced that it needs to reduce oil output in tandem with OPEC, but is still bargaining with the producers group leader Saudi Arabia over exactly when and how much of a reduction. So they're saying that there, I guess, was a meeting in Russia that you know everybody was agreeing that Russia does need to reduce, but they're kind of debating on how quickly uh, and it should be over time uh, and really the effect of that. Yeah, this is some interesting stuff going on. So when all of this first started, uh, when the price of crude crept down, and I was, it's you know, it's, well, I don't mean, I haven't looked at it, but it's around fifty dollars a barrel, fifty one, fifty two dollars a barrel for WTI right now. The first thing that popped my head was this is what U.S. politicians have always done, regardless of what side of the fence you're on. As long as you can keep pump prices low, everybody's happy. And then I started looking into a little bit deeper. It's like, you know, it's timed just right. We've all switched or most of or yeah, the whole country just about by now switched to their winter blend of fuels. Winter blend fuels are cheaper to make, right? So that lowers the price at the pump, which by the way, next spring when the prices go up, it's because we did the opposite. We switched to summer blend, which is a costlier blend to make. But anyway, and so I, I really started looking into this. Let me tell you what I think's happened. And of course, you know, the White House doesn't call me and ask my opinion on stuff. Although if you're, we do know they're listening and that's, I'm not making a joke. We really do know <laughs> that we have uh, people in Congress that listen to the show. If you want my input on this, I'd be happy to, to talk you through this, but this is what I think is going on, Jake. I think this is a very strategic, long-term play. So I think the U.S. is wanting to keep prices relatively low about what they are now. At this point, we still can make money, but OPEC and specifically Saudi Arabia can't make enough of a profit to put the money back into their savings fund. And please no hate me. I know it's not a savings fund. It's a sovereign wealth fund, but it's they treat it like a savings account. So they can't put money back into it. And so if you follow that chain of thought, just like you and me, Jake, if, if every now and then we pull out of our savings account, but we can never put money back in there, the end game is not pretty. We disappear. I think this is our current political administration playing a very long-term end game and trying to destabilize OPEC so that they no longer, even with cooperation from Russia, can influence crude oil prices. I think the U.S. was getting ready to step into the step into the limelight here where even Russia and OPEC together can't control prices because the amount of, of hydrocarbons we can put on the market if we decided to. So I think this is a longer term play. And if I'm right about this, OPEC, specifically Saudi Arabia, also sees this happening. And so if, if I was Saudi Arabia, and even though they're working together with Russia, the truth is they don't like each other. They're working together because they have a common business foe, which is U.S. oil production. So if I'm if I'm Saudi Arabia and I'm looking at this, it's like, you know, if I play this game right, if I cooperate with the U.S. and we keep prices low, if we don't do a cut in production, Russia will run out of money first before I do. And since I don't really like them, Maybe I'll let that happen. Maybe I'll let Russia go bankrupt, which is what Ronald Reagan did, and with the help of Saudi Arabia, you know, back in the '80s, which destroyed the Soviet Union. So, I think it's a very strategic play. That it's a very subtle thing. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, crude prices. I don't think it has anything to do with military arms deals. I think this is a longer term play where the U.S. is 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 looking to destabilize OPEC and to basically take the Russian influence out of the market. Hmm. 
man, there's, there's, it, it's kind of just hard to wrap your head around. There's so many factors at play that really do control this. Well, and I'm going to say something that I wasn't going to say on the mic, but now I'm going to say it. Please no hate mail. <laughs> I like a lot of what our current administration is doing. A lot of it I don't like, right? But if I'm right about this being very strategic, this is super smart thinking by somebody. I mean, super smart thinking. So, and I wasn't really sure that we had that level of long-term oil and gas thinking in our government. So let's keep an eye on this. It'll be really interesting to watch. If I'm right about this, prices are going to stay low for the next two years. So let's see. If prices stay low for the next two years, I'm probably right about this. Well, let's hope prices go up. <laughs> I know you need them to up. go up. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't uh, know people, Jake's an operator. So he wants prices up so he can sell us all at more money. They can sell it today. I try not to look at it every day. It drives me crazy. <laughs> All right, up next, since we're already talking about Saudi Arabia, uh, let's kind of dive into uh, Aram- Aramco. Saudi Aramco will invest more than $100 billion in chemicals over the next 10 years while seeking a better balance between their upstream and downstream segments. That's an extremely smart move. Yeah. it's So what's going on is... All of OPEC, including Saudi Aramco, forever have made their money by selling crude on the global market. They didn't care about products like downstream. They didn't care about moving around midstream. They just sold it, right? And it's kind of funny. Even though they were at that time the world's largest exporter of crude and natural gas, they imported all their own gasoline. So they bought a lot of fuel from us because it wasn't worth their time to even build refineries. Why do that when you're making so much money you're exporting it? What they've realized, and if you listen to the show, I called this a couple years ago, what they realized is that they need to own more of the value chain of oil and gas. And downstream, specifically petrochemicals, is a huge high margin business right now. So what they're doing is they're trying to capture that business. And the reason I think they're trying to do that is what I just talked about earlier. I think long-term wise, Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabia realized that the way they made money and the way they controlled prices with OPEC is going to disappear. Now, whether it's going to disappear in 2020 or in 2100, I don't know. Actually, I, I have a guess. I'm not going to say it, but but I, this is what they're doing. They're, they're now future-proofing their hydrocarbon revenue stream. And this is a smart move on their part, very smart move on their part. It is going to give us a competition in the petrochemicals market, but the thing is, we've been t- first to market for for 20 years, and they're, they're going to have to push us out of certain markets to grab market share. And I don't think they can do that today. If you remember, Mark, there was an episode that you and I did, um, I want to say over a year ago, probably we, we kind of dove deep into, uh, I mean, oil prices are still pretty low. We dove deep into the, uh, some of the, the revenues and the profits of ExxonMobil, Chevron, a few other companies, and really just comparing how much they were making on the upstream side versus the, the downstream side. And right. I was just absolutely blown away at how much money they were making. Yeah. And the other part of that, people, if you're listening to this, and, and I even I didn't know this till about five years ago, in the U.S., it's two totally different business cultures and profit margins in downstream. You have the fuel refineries, which don't want anything new, low margin, highly forecastable business. We haven't built a new fuel refinery in this country since the 70s. And the petrochemical, which is want anything new. They're excited. A lot of their plants haven't been built yet. So they're always looking for new stuff, new technology, new process, and they're extremely high margin business. So it's interesting to see that. And I think in that episode, Jake, if I remember right, that was a couple of years ago. That's when I told you that uh, ExxonMobil's international chemical business, petrochemical business had grown a hundred percent in revenue year over year. And when you're the size of ExxonMobil and a piece of your business grows over a hundred percent in a year, that's, uh, it's almost unheard of. Yeah, that's absolutely insane. So smart move by Saudi Ramco, we believe, I guess we'll, yep. uh, kind of watch this as it continues to materialize. Up next, kind of going back to some of the uh, geopolitical stuff, Qatar, who has been a member of OPEC since 1961, said it is leaving OPEC next month. They are OPEC's 11th biggest oil producer. 
but they're only accounting for less than 2% of the total output. What do you think this means, Mark, for OPEC? This is what I've been talking about forever, this destabilization of OPEC when it's members. The, the only reason OPEC has any power is because their members do what everybody wants them to do, what they vote on. And as soon as you have members of OPEC that don't do cuts when everybody else does cuts or doesn't increase production or everybody else increase production, then it's the cartel quit, starts to fall apart. And that's what's happening here. So Qatar is like, you know what? I don't care. LNG is the fuel of the future. We got a ton of gas. I don't need you. You get in my way. You keep me from making money when I should make money. And, and quite honestly, I want a better relationship with the Western world <laughs> than what y'all have done lately. So, so this is, a, I think, could, if, I, if I was the leadership in the leadership of Qatar, I would have done this a year ago. But I think this is a great move by Qatar. Now, the big thing is what is OPEC to do about it? So anytime you have a group, and this is, this is human nature, there's some psychology in here, and you have people in that group, in this case, countries, leave, for the first time, everybody else goes, well, they left. Can I leave? And what would be the benefits of leaving? So is this the domino that starts the domino effect inside of OPEC? Could be. We have to keep eyes on this. All right. Up next, ExxonMobil is using wind and solar power to produce crude in Texas. Uh, so Exxon has just entered into uh, 12-year agreements with, I think it's Orsted. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. It's a... I think that's right, Orsted. Okay. With Orsted, uh, they're buying, I'm guessing it's 500 megawatts? Yeah. Nope. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, megawatts. 500 megawatts of wind and solar power in the Permian Basin. Obviously, you know, the fastest growing oil field we have here in the U.S. And this is the largest ever renewable power contract signed by an oil company ever. Okay. Let's just start talking about all the ironic things in this article. This is awesome. <laughs> so first thing, if you would have told me 10 years ago, I would see a headline that had the word Exxon and solar in the same sentence, in the same headline. I would have said, you're crazy, right? I love you, Exxon. I really do. I really do. I've known you all for a long time. You're an oil company, right? You're not an energy company. Uh, and I know your PR and your marketing people have spun that a little bit lately. I, I know you too well. But this is really awesome, Jake. So, so you have that going on, which is ironically funny. But then you have a Denmark company helping them set this up in the Permian in Texas. What the heck? <laughs> what, what? I mean, this almost sounds like a comedy getting ready to start, but it's actually really cool. So one of the things that people know is when you're, you're especially when you're drilling and you're going into completions, you need a ton of electricity. All the rigs now run uh, high horsepower electric motors. And that's what makes them so fast. So what happens is it used to be all that was done on gensets. Gensets are expensive. What's much more effective and a much more less of an impact to the environment is to run what's called factory power, which is from the electrical generation companies out there. And so what they're doing is they're replacing that factory power with uh, solar and wind because they need the energy out there. Now, that sounds like a PR stunt. It's not. So what's going to happen is one of the things about especially – solar is that you don't need the infrastructure. So in oil and gas, you think about pipelines moving hydrocarbons. In the electrical world, it's electrical lines that move the power. Well, if you can eliminate the pipeline, if you can eliminate the electrical lines and go straight from solar to your your batteries and that powers your motors, all of a sudden you just take a big piece of infrastructure out of the, out of the equation, which equates cost savings, less lost time instance because there's nobody out there building power lines and an increase in efficiency. And so if you're, if you're listening to us and you've never heard me say this before, the other thing about this that's really cool is the number one wind generating state of any state in the U.S. is us. 
Texas, right? We produce almost 30 gigawatts of wind power. Nobody else is even close. And we do it for profit, unlike other states, California, that gets government subsidies on that. So I just think this is an awesome story. And this is the future. There's a bunch of solar and wind stuff going up in the Gulf of Mexico because it's just cheaper than them hauling diesel out to gensets. And so I think this is a marriage made in heaven. I love renewables. Now, I love renewables because it's a market for my hydrocarbons. <laughs> um, but I, I really do love renewables. And this is a great application in a part of the country that doesn't have the infrastructure it needs to get the electricity to the well. So good job for everybody here. All right. Gazprom Neft, which, if you don't know, is the third largest oil producer in Russia, uh, is implementing a 2030 digital strategy transformation. And so essentially, they're, they're working on a lot of different projects. They're kind of moving towards what has been coined as like industry 4.0. So a lot of like Internet of Things technologies, new methodologies around operations process management. There's a whole bunch of buzzwords actually in this article, quote unquote, the intelligent oil field, digital filling station, cognitive geology. Essentially, long story short, it seems like they're they're putting together a solid digital strategy to make the best use out of all the information that they have available to them, leveraging technologies like AI, big data, Internet of Things, and they even include blockchain in here as well. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, so Jake, I want to ask you a question. question. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a question around this. So this is your world, right? You live and breathe this world, intersection of technology and oil and gas. Gazprom is a NOC, is a nationalized oil company. So their culture is kind of set by the Russian government in some ways. What do you think the odds of them changing the culture internally are for the people actually do the work to adopt this new technology, this new process, so they actually get these cost savings and this reductions in in times. I, I think the biggest struggle they have internally is just the culture of Gazprom itself. Yeah, so we, I said, our well hub team sat down with ExxonMobil's integration team, I don't know, six, eight months ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, and that was the biggest issue that they had. They were tasked by the new CEO after Rex Tillerson left, and that was one of the things on his, I guess, on his uh, 10-point plan was to build better, essentially, integration uh, digital for, with, in their digital strategy, better integration from a data standpoint. And they've been working on it for two years. And the biggest problem that they had when they're like, you know, we have 10,000 people on this campus alone. And just the cultural side of trying to get everybody off of certain systems or where they have housework certain data, uh, it's just been an absolute nightmare. We're kind of at a standstill. And so that was kind of what our meeting was centered around. And so, you know, you can probably imagine that Gazprom Neff is the same way. The difference being, I would think that just, I've never done business in Russia. I've never even been to Russia. I've just heard stories. So maybe they're a little bit more tough on the way that they can enforce certain strategies. I don't know. <laughs> so you're saying that somebody's going to be out there making them do this. Like you do this or you're in Siberia. <laughs> yeah. Or like, you know, your kneecaps disappeared, you know, so. Maybe so. Maybe so. It'd be interesting. It's, you know, it's funny about that is, you know, as we grow oil and gas global network, I've noticed that even internally with us, I mean, some of us like certain tools and some of us don't. And, you know, I could, I could force people to, to fit into what I want them to do, but that's not really a very productive way. It's just from a, somebody that runs a business, I got to look at scalability. So is it okay to have a mismatch of tools today? Yes. Will that be okay in the future? Eh, probably not. But how do I get from where we are today to there? So I haven't figured it out either. But I, I do think culture is something that and, and I think Jake, I want your opinion on that too. I think culture is something that a lot of oil and gas companies fail to consider when they look at bringing in new technology. Yeah, I don't think they necessarily. I mean, I think smaller companies do because you can you can see it with the in the meetings of of the the technologies that's being, I guess, kind of evaluated. Yeah, I mean, it's such a huge barrier. Yeah. There's there's so many there's so many people in a, in a that could kind of kill a deal like that, especially for like a mid sized operator implementing any kind of light technology. But 
you've got to understand that there's always going to be a learning curve up front and things are always going to move a little bit slower up front. But the efficiency and the value that you can get out of the data from usually implementing some kind of tools like this is just, it's kind of hard to put a hard number on the ROI because it's so great. Yeah. And you know, you made me think about this different. So let's keep an eye on this because if they, Gazprom manages to do this quicker than the American European co- companies, then maybe you're onto something. Maybe you do need a bit of a toe tolerant, you know, management style when you're going through this type of change to make people uh, adopt it and see the benefits in it. I don't know. Let's, let's, let's we'll keep an eye on this and we'll, we'll see. We'll come back and visit it later. Yep. All right. Uh, Baker Hughes GE launches Subsea Connect and Aptera Totex Light Subsea system. That is a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so they've, mouthful. they've announced the launch of a new uh, subsea development. Uh, I won't reread the name. It's a suite of new lightweight modular technologies designed for the full life of the field by combining plan and risk management, new modular deep water technology, innovative partnerships, and digital tools into a single offering. So what does that actually mean? That's a whole lot of marketing jargon. Yeah. So let me tell you, this is actually pretty cool if they can pull it off. So in the subsea world, there's so much inefficiencies built into the way they do business that you're amazed anybody can make any money. So you can go to a field in the Gulf of Mexico that Exxon has. When you have that field, you have to have something called a tree, subsea tree, when you go into production. That basically maintains control of the well and does the separation of the sand, water, oil, and all kinds of stuff you need to run safe, environmentally friendly operations on the bottom of the ocean floor. And so that Exxon field will have trees on it that was designed by Exxon. Exxon has its own subsea engineers that design those trees, and they go to somebody like uh, Cameron or uh, Technique FMC or Acker and say, hey, can you build these for us? Each one of those trees are different. Right. So they could have taken the most robust tree that they designed and replicated over and over again, and it would have saved money. But they don't. Each one's designed differently for each well. Right next door to them, there's a field that Anadarko has. Anadarko has a totally different strategy. Anadarko doesn't have, and yes, I know they have some, but Anadarko doesn't have subsea engineers that design trees. They go to the same vendors, the uh, Technique FMCs, the Camerons, the Ackers, and go, you're the expert in subsea manufacturing. Here's the specs of our field. What tree should we have? Once again, even though Anadarko is not doing the engineering, each tree is different. And if they would have taken the most most robust tree and replicate, they would have saved money. It's the same thing with all the engineering that goes in. It's the same thing with all the umbilicals or subsea pipelines or pets. They're all individual. They're all one-off. And that drives a huge amount of inefficiency. Plus, if you're a subsea engineer with Exxon and you've learned Exxon world, you only can work in the Exxon subsea world. You can't go work in the Chevron and Darko world because all their equipment's different. right? All their processes are different. That drives inefficiencies. So what Baker Hughes is doing here is they're taking a bunch of processes and some tools and trying to streamline the process of going to, to production in the bottom of the ocean floor. It's been needed. A bunch of people have tried this. I think we're in the right time in the market because that subsea oil, especially if it's deep water or ultra deep water, and especially if it's high pressure, high temperature, is prohibitively expensive. And we need to drive those costs down so that world can open back up again. And I think this is a step in the right direction. The big question, as always, is will the market respond to this? And because it's coming from Baker Hughes GE, I think they have a chance of pulling this off. So we'll have to keep an eye on this. Which, by the way, yes, Baker Hughes GE is still sponsoring our oil and gas Permian Perspective podcast. We're just working to get that out the door. And then, Jake, soon you and I are going to have an announcement about this podcast and some changes that are going on. And it's all good, people. Don't get worried about it. It's all good stuff. But it's pretty big changes for us. So, so stay tuned for that. All exciting stuff. And then last article of the day, I believe, BP and is it Acre or Zacker? Acker. Acker. Form strategic technology venture 
Alliance. So they've signed a ventures cooperation agreement with Acker BP to explore possible areas of cooperation and development of advanced technologies in their business. In the article, does it really talk about what the technologies are? Let's see. So it's funny. I don't know. I don't know if you put this in here. Or I put this in here. It's whoever did it was an accident. But this feeds right into what I was just talking about the earlier article with Baker Hughes GE. So here's BP and Acker. So BP's an operator. Acker's a subsea manufacturer doing trying to do the same thing we just talked about, mm-hmm. trying to drive efficiencies by partnering together instead of Acker just being a vendor to BP. Like I said, great idea. The problem with it here is now this is a different approach than what Baker Hughes GE is doing. And in order for us to drive efficiencies. Offshore, subsea, everybody has to be on the same page. And yes, I know it's going to take 50 years, but what needs to have happened, and, and everybody knows what needs to have happened because all the major operators in the world, I think two years ago, signed a memorandum of understanding saying that we will work together as a team, even though we're competitors, to standardize offshore. So here's another a- approach of doing what's Baker Hughes is trying to do with their subsea connect. So, you know, w- once again, if the thing that bothers me about this is here's two different companies trying to do reach the same goal two different ways. What we need is all of them to work together. So maybe if you're listening, I'm a big fan of y'all, Acker, or, and, and I'm a pretty decent fan of y'all too, BP. Um, but maybe if y'all listen, maybe y'all could, I can connect y'all with Baker Hughes. We know this guy's really well. And maybe y'all could combine what y'all are doing with uh, Baker Hughes' Subsea Connect program, or, or maybe vice versa. I'd be happy to make those introductions if anybody wants me to. All right, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed the articles for this week. Mark, are we still giving offshore bags? Yes, we're still giving away offshore bags till the end of this year. So you think they're a cult collector item now, you better try to get one soon because this is December. So no purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. It's really simple. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in and we give away one lucky winner a week. What's the rig count doing, Jake? It's a funny thing about the the bag is I'm flying out tomorrow to Pittsburgh. My wife's flying out to California at the same time. And she came downstairs a second ago and claimed my my offshore bag as her her travel bag. (laughs) Yeah, they they really are great bags. If y'all haven't if you haven't won one, haven't seen one, you need to go check it out. I think there's a picture on the website. But um I'm just telling you now folks, enter now because they're not gonna be around forever. All right, rig count is up eleven forty six, up one percent from the previous week. Okay. Good number. Yeah, and then this is probably going to go out just in time for you to miss this. <laughs> but, you know, every year I do my oil and gas predictions, and we'll actually bring it on this show as well. But if you happen to be here in Houston uh, this Thursday, I'm actually doing this live. Big shout out to Tableau. They made that possible from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. So nobody's going to try to sell you anything. I'm going to get up there, tell some funny stories, talk through our predictions for 2019, and then we're going to have food and drinks and just a good time. So if you want to go, we didn't put this on our social, right? So we, we invite our podcast listeners. So there's a link in the show notes. Just go click. But if it's if you hear this after Thursday, December 6th, I'm sorry, it's too late. You have to wait till next year. And then, Jake, you want to talk a little bit about the SP Innovation uh, Entrepreneur Symposium? Yep. So there is the second annual SPE Innovation Entrepreneurship Symposium. That's a mouthful. Uh, February 27th to 28th here in Houston. Make sure you try to register for by November 30th. I was looking at pricing yesterday. This is, you know, this is like a conference. You know, this is like conference pricing. So do we have like a code or anything for them? No, we don't have a code or anything. They should give us a code. SP, you should give, they should a give us a code. Give you a little bit of a discount code. But it's going to be a cool event. There's going to be, uh, I know they're having like a Shark Tank type panel. They're having, I think, like eight different startups. Um, they're having a bunch of leaders from uh, the industry kind of come out and talk, uh, you know, about different strategies and what some of the challenges are. So I'll definitely be there. But Colin will probably be there as well. Mark, you might be there. 
So it's a, it's a good event to go to, whether you want to meet us or not, but we'll also be there as well. Yeah. So the funny thing is, Jake, totally separate from you and I, and I didn't even think about it, but I have been formally invited to this exact event. I didn't put two and two together until we stuck out on the mic to do this. I'm going to actually be on the panel with uh, Maynard Holt and Gary Peterson and Ken Medock and uh, Toby Rice. So I will be there, but I'll be on the panel. Okay. Well, then I guess I had to come and cheer you on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, come cheer me on. I'm, I'm in the <laughs> middle of some of the heaviest hitters in oil and gas in the world, and, and somehow I end up getting uh, able to get on the panel with them. I'll be the jokester of the bunch. Watch. <laughs> I'll be sticking some people's backs. <laughs> All right, and then we have our happy hour, obviously, Tuesday, November 27th uh, at the Canon, where it's always at. So be sure to register for that. We've had a good turnout every hey, single Jake, month. Let me stop you. Yep. Because that, that was like last month. Oh, oh wow. You're right. Yeah. So, so Jake doesn't have a time machine. No worries. If he did, I'd make him take me back and I'd buy a bunch of stock and stuff. How is it already December? I'm telling you, we're not doing a happy hour in December because we figured nobody would show up. And if they did show up, you know, it wouldn't be a big crowd. So the next one we're doing is January. It's going to be Tuesday, January 29th here in Houston. It's very simple. We now have, if you go to oilandgasglobalnetwork.com and go to the events page, you can see we have a calendar of all the events. Right now it's just this one, but by 2019, we'll have these same things in a whole bunch of cities all over the place. And then Jake, we hit a snag. We talked about last time how we finally managed to buy OGGN.com so we don't have that long URL. Mm-hmm. Well, because of who is rules, I'm not allowed to use that for 52 days. <laughs> so I got to wait 52 days, which puts us toward the end of January before we get to switch that over. So somewhere in the near future, instead of going to oilandgasglobalnetwork.com, you'll be able to go to OGGN.com. No worries. You don't have to write anything down because we'll point both URLs in the same place. But it's going to be cool to actually have a shortened URL so that we can fit our email address on our business card. Yeah, that'll make it so much easier. Yeah. And if you want to know about this event and more, you have my monthly events newsletter. It goes out uh, every month. We take all the oil and gas events and put it in your inbox once a month for free. Plus, we often give you free tickets to stuff that you don't even know about. So go sign up. You're crazy not to do it. We never spam you. And then if you want Jake and I to come talk, we, we've got a bunch of stuff for 2019. We got actually a couple of universities and some sales and marketing. We got Jake doesn't even know this. We have some pretty big oil service companies that want Jake and I to come speak to their sales and marketing team. If you're getting ready to do your sales and marketing kickoff and you'd like something more entertaining and valuable to your people than uh, you know, jokey the clown, right? Let Call Jake and I. Let us bring the podcast there. Let's do a live podcast from your event. Let us do some answer some questions, some Q&A. We actually can help your sales and marketing teams understand how to do business better in oil and gas in the future in 2019. So reach out to us. And at the same time, if you want us to come to your university or your uh, whatever company event, whatever, we would be happy to just reach out to us and we'll share the details. First Friday Q&A, you know the deal. Give us a question and we will answer it. And if we answer it on the air, we'll give you a big shout out. We got a whole bunch of questions for, the, for December Q&A that we got to get to. Oh, yeah. And there's some good questions, too. And then if you if you go to the website, go ahead and give us your email address. So the website's allgasthisweek.com. We won't spam you, but those email addresses are what we're going to use in the future when we start having more specialized stuff. And then if you haven't joined a LinkedIn group, take a minute. Go to just search for OGGN. It'll pop right up. We're, we have a new marketing group that's working with us. And part of our marketing strategy for 2019 is we're starting developing unique content. So hopefully existing LinkedIn members, I know we haven't been pushing much out there. Hopefully in 2019, we're going to have some valuable stuff that you only will get on the LinkedIn group. So go sign up. Whew, that was a lot. And it's December. Um, <laughs> you ready to get out here, Jake? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Remember folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.